Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. And we're back. You've made it. Welcome in for another edition of Let's Hear It. Uh, Mr. Brown, how are you today? I'm doing well. <laughs> you've made it. It's true. If you're listening, you've made it. <laughs> you found us. Welcome into hopefully our uh, somewhat quiet island of tranquility, of reflection, of discussion in in what uh, I think are somewhat stormy seas for us all these days. Um, yeah. So tell us who we're about to listen to today, Eric. Well, today we're going to listen to Sabil Rahman, who is the president of Demos, which is a a think and do tank. I would call Demos the holy trinity of the social sector. It Ooh. does thinky-tanky research, deep message and narrative work coupled with advocacy, and they've got a pile of lawyers on the case. <laughs> so research, narrative work with advocacy, and lawyers. That, to me, is a powerful combination. And Sabil Rahman uh, and I, were on, we were on the board of the Narrative Initiative, which is where I met him, and he is just an extraordinary human being, and I love him. And I, I, I'm looking forward to listening for folks to be able to listen to this conversation. Before we do that, I just wanted to note that uh, uh, the passing of John Lewis, yes. who, the Congress member from Georgia. And I have a kind of brush with greatness John Lewis story. Actually, it was a daily brush with greatness. When I was a press secretary on the Hill in the late 90s, my boss, Nidia Velasquez, who is still there and is the chair of the House Small Business Committee, was on the communications task force. And every morning that Congress was in session, we would meet in the basement of the Capitol and talk about the message of the day and mm -hmm. what the one-minute speeches would be. And my boss would look back at me and nod to me if she wanted me to write one. And uh, so I'd go racing off to my office uh, in the Longworth House office building, and I would meet her on the floor and hand her her speech, and then she would give it, and then we would start our day. Uh, and John Lewis was a member of that committee, and that committee was made up of extraordinary people, Nancy Pelosi, Richard Gephardt, George Miller, Dave Obie, Rosa DeLauro, um, and on and on and on. And they would sit there, and these, these great minds and fabulous leaders would sit and talk about how to shape the message of America, and John Lewis was one of them, and he was kind and powerful, and people really, really look to him for guidance and leadance and leader leadership and kind of a, a spiritual base. And and his passing is just so very sad. His um, his book Walking Walking with the Wind is a fabulous a fabulous read. I, I strongly encourage folks to pick it up and read it. It's his memoir. And uh, I just I, I just wanted to to note his passing. A great, great, great American uh, is has moved on. Thank you for that. Yes, John Lewis, thank you for a lifetime of leadership. And um, Sabil Rachman, thank you for joining us here and Let's Hear It. Let's listen to Sabil in your conversation, Eric, and then we'll come back and we'll chat about it. Welcome to Let's Hear It. 
My guest today is Sabil Rahman, the president of Demos, which is a, I guess you call it a think and do tank that advocates for a just, inclusive, and multiracial democracy. Sabil, thank you so much for coming on Let's Hear It. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's a real thrill to be here, Eric. Thanks so much. This must be an interesting time to be doing work on a just, inclusive, and multiracial democracy. Can you talk a little bit about how Demos does that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, first of all, you know, of course, like everyone in this moment, we're holding the not just the deep suffering, but the deep kind of cascades of failures that black and brown communities in particular are facing in this moment, right? Not just the COVID pandemic, which hits black and brown communities especially hard, uh, not just the economic collapse, which is also the brunt of which is being felt especially by black and brown workers and black and brown communities, uh, but also like the catastrophic failure of government, right, to do anything remotely responsive uh, and responsible uh, for those communities that are hit hardest. And all of that is really uh, at the forefront of our work at Demos. You know, we we see ourselves as a, a think tank of the movement. And for us, what that means is we're working in deep partnership with grassroots organizations, social movements, partners on the ground who are building political power and doing the base building and organizing work in black and brown communities. And as a think tank, what that means for us is we're really working with these partners to think about, you know, what are the policy ideas that will actually help advance us to an anti-racist and more egalitarian society? What are the types of strategies that will help build power over the long run? You know, drawing on learnings from many years of campaign work, uh, using our litigation tools that we have on staff to try to jumpstart social change as well. And so we are one organization among many, but this is a moment of both urgency and also possibility, right? Because there's so much that is moving so quickly, in particular, thinking about the movement for Black Lives and how they've helped transform the national conversation in this moment. It's a really critical time to be doing this work. So yeah, you're not just a bunch of, <laughs> you're not just a bunch of deep thinkers. And you're not just a bunch of advocates, but you are armed with JDs. Is that correct? Many of us on staff do. We have, the way it breaks down is we have a legal team that does amazing litigation work. We have a policy and research team, some of whom are, are trained lawyers, some of whom are kind of deep policy experts, all of whom are deep policy experts, a campaigns and partnerships team that is kind of helping connect us to grassroots campaigns and also build deep partnerships on the ground. Uh, and then, of course, you know, amazing operations and development and comms. They're all the things that you need to try to build an impact in this moment. I almost can't think of a more exciting place to be than Demos right now. Needless to say, it, it occurs in the context of all kinds of challenges, but this must be the moment you've been planning for or, or training yourself for or something. Is it fair to say that? No, I mean, it, it really is a moment for all the work that our team is doing, but more importantly, that the movement is doing, yeah, right? I yeah, think um, we're seeing the fruition right now, I think, of decades worth of organizing, advocacy, narrative and messaging, policy work. Even if you think going back, say, four or five years, you know, one of the big issues we work on, for example, is a debt cancellation and student debt crisis. And we've been working on that issue for a number of years from a policy standpoint, from a racial equity standpoint, right? What does it mean for the racial wealth gap? and linking that to demands from black and brown communities on the ground and to now see a world where debt cancellation and the the role that debt plays in perpetuating uh, our racist economy, that's not a fringe idea. That is at the heart of the national conversation. And there's like 50 other ideas that our movement partners are now putting on the table too that are even further transformative. We're excited about this work. And we're, I think like a lot of our partners, trying to do as much as we can, as fast as we can to lean into this moment. It also seems like, I, 
I'm kind of excited that you're in this place because it also feels to me like your career has led you to this moment as well. Can you just talk a little bit about how you ended up in that chair? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one of those things that you both don't plan for and feels totally right when you, so it's a real blessing to have the opportunity. So, you know, I'm a Bangladeshi American by background, really kind of grew up all over. My dad used to work for the UN. I was born in New York, so I'm I'm the anchor baby in our family, but grew up a large part of my childhood in Thailand and in, in the global South. And so I was always connected to interest in these issues of how race, the economy, and democracy interrelate, right? And how these systems actually often conspire to keep hierarchies in place, hierarchies that we need to do what we can to take apart. I then, you know, got into the law. Uh, I'm a before Demos, I was a law professor. I'm a law professor. Uh, still, am affiliated with Brooklyn Law School, and the Legal Academy was for me a perch to dig deeper into these questions and to look at how law and policy provide that underlying infrastructure for either for building a democracy or for uh, frustrating a democracy, right? So much of the systems that we're trying to dismantle are not the product of nature. They're not uh, forces of the weather. They're the product of policy and, and of politics. And so I'd been looking into that stuff pretty deeply from an academic perch, doing work on the side where I could with movement partners and progressive philanthropies, other think tanks, you know, as a fellow at a number of think tanks for a while. And then when the opportunity came at Demos, you know, this was one of those things where you never expect to get a job like this. You think, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring and, and kind of see what happens. And, you know, maybe if it doesn't work out, maybe I'll get another shot in a few years down the line. And then one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was having a somewhat hilarious, but very supportive conversation with the dean at the law school, where I was like, well, I know I have students enrolled in the fall, but actually I think I need to take this opportunity in this moment that we're in. And I mean, they were incredibly supportive at the law school, which was great. One quick anecdote I'll say about this, you know, I think it was my second round interview with the board to interview for the position. And I was basically in a media blackout all day because I was in interviews, talking to people all day. And then I came home and I, and I caught up on the news and I saw that that was actually the day that the Supreme Court and John Roberts uh, issued the ruling reaffirming uh, Trump's Muslim ban, the travel ban. And as a Muslim American in this moment, I remember talking to my partner and saying like, well, gosh, like, I mean, if by some stroke of fortune, I get this job, how can I not do it, right? Because the moment is such that we all, it's sort of incumbent on all of us to do everything we possibly can and place ourselves in the positions to help advance the cause as best as we can. And I'm really fortunate that that worked out. There are so many ways that you can go with an organization like Demos, which is looking at a kind of a broad set of challenges, infrastructure challenges, obviously these historical challenges. Where do you, where do you start? What was your what was your game plan after you found the bathroom and the coffee? What did you do? It's a great question because it's that's a question I think that is both about organizational strategy and also really one about like what is the thing that we're actually trying to do here, right? All of us. So there are a couple of things that I'd point to. First of all, I mean I think first is it's really important and I I found it really helpful to just absorb from the team and from all of our partner organizations make sure that we're all clear about what the root problem is. And I think for, for Demos, for all of us, our diagnosis is that race and power are at the heart of what we're fighting against in this moment, that we have an economy and a democracy that really operates. It's not even, it's not, we can't even really use the term democracy because we have, we have a, a society that is, has been engineered to reassert hierarchies of race over and over and over again. 
and to keep those hierarchies in place by concentrating political power. So what does that mean? I'll give an example. Uh, it's not a coincidence that the precise moment that the Civil Rights Movement and Civil Rights Act uh, achieves the desegregation of our uh, public school systems and our, and our uh, public parks, that that's the moment you start to see white flight and the privatization of public infrastructure. It's the same reason why the moment that the incoming college class in this country becomes the most racially diverse in its history, that that's the moment that governments start to defund public higher ed, which gives rise to the student debt crisis. Uh, this is the push-pull of how race is reasserted and racial hierarchy is reasserted by policy and by politics. And then the power part of it comes from like, well, if we need to change those, we need to have the kind of power in black and brown communities and the kind of political and policy and narrative power to push back against those moves and to create and defend a more inclusive alternative. And so that means, you know, you need to be able to vote. You need to have policies that actually put race and racial equity at the center. And then you need the kind of narrative and vision that can help activate and, and stitch all of this together. And so that really gets us to what Demos is about, right? We know that ultimately it's going to take people power to make this kind of a revolution happen. And that's why we're so committed to working with grassroots partners. And we know that part of what our grassroots partners need and the help that we can offer is thinking through the policy, bringing our litigation chops, thinking about the the kinds of like narrative and messaging that can help advance these ideas. And so it's really about getting clear about theory of change and role. And the last thing I'll say, which is a bit more of maybe an inside baseball point, but might be of interest is just, there are lots of different types of organizations in the progressive ecosystem. And one thing I was always fascinated by before coming to Demos is this question, well, how do we be more as a field, as a, as a universe, how do we be more than the sum of our parts, right? Because we're so outgunned those of us who are trying to create progressive change, we're always going to be outspent by big corporations. We're always going to be subject to kind of scurrilous and, and unscrupulous attempts to hoard power. And we see that in spades with today's uh, GOP, that it's really important for any progressive organization to have a deep humility about how our work plugs into and complements and helps sort of supercharge the work of others. Uh, and I think that that spirit of humility is something that I really found with the Demos team, and I think we all really share. And how do you do that? How, Needless to say, our audience are, are foundation, nonprofit, communications people primarily, and then other folks who work in those organizations. And I think anybody who cares about <laughs> coming up with a just recovery or a, a, a reformation of some kind is trying to figure out how they balance the information they're getting, how they use the various tools that are at their disposal, and how they communicate in, in, in community with lots and lots of other organizations. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you say to them? How do you help them think through how this narrative – and I really want to talk after the break a lot yep. more about narrative. But, but how do you help knit those forces and individuals and, and that set of passions together? Yeah, that's that's great because I think a key lesson from our work has been that it takes real investment to live into that value of humility and of being part of a larger movement ecosystem. And so I'll give a concrete example. You know, one of our central projects is what we call the Inclusive Democracy Project. And that's where we work with a cohort of black and brown leaders who are doing base building, organizing work in black and brown communities in several states across the country. You know, everyone from uh, Desmond Mead at the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition to the amazing folks at uh, Texas Organizing Project to the amazing people at Olay in New Mexico. We've got a number of partners 
uh, who we work really closely with, uh, Community Voices Heard here in New York, uh, among others. And that whole project really is about us being in deep relationship with our grassroots partners and co-creating, thinking together with them about strategy, about policy, understanding from them what's happening in, in black and brown communities, how are people thinking about the alternative, envisioning the alternative, and kind of using our role as a national think tank to help co-create and then support and lift up the leadership and the ideas coming from these leaders and from the communities themselves. And so that often means then that as a national think tank, there are times where we can help amplify and and advance some ideas, right, say around what a racially just and inclusive electoral system has to look like in context of the pandemic. Uh, but a lot of times it also means us taking a back seat and thinking about, okay, where do we actually not need to be front and center and need to be more uh, working behind the scenes and in the background to help ensure the spotlight is on those folks who are the real experts. And I think this is the last thing is that we're really clear that even though we're a think tank, for us, the experts aren't just people who are deep in the policy weeds, but it's really communities themselves, the people who are the most affected, who are directly impacted. They're the real experts in understanding what the power analysis is, what's really going on, and what the alternatives need to uh, need to be like. Um, the last thing I'll say is all of that takes time, right? It takes time, it takes staff, it takes real expertise in building those relationships and sustaining those partnerships. And so we spend a lot of staff time and a lot of dollars, right, on investing in our in our partners and in, our, in those relationships. Well, it feels to me like something is starting to change. And after the break, I want to talk a lot more about that and about narrative in general, because it's very central to the work that you do. So we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be back with Sabil Rahman of Demos after this. You're listening to Let's Hear It, a podcast about foundation and nonprofit communications hosted by Kirk Brown and Eric Brown. Let's Hear It is sponsored by the Communications Network, which connects, gathers, and informs the field of leaders working in communications for good. Because foundations and nonprofits that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. You can find Let's Hear It online at letshearitcast.com or on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Hear It. My guest is the, the great Seville Rachman, the president of Demos. Um, Seville, this is such an interesting conversation because in many ways it's the it's it's the coming together of a lot of conversations that a lot of the organizations that we've worked with over the years have have had which is this combination of of justice democracy and creating a narrative that people i think are starting to connect with in ways that they hadn't before and i'll, I'll give you a very brief example is that my 86-year-old mother had a conversation with my 24-year-old daughter about the movement for Black Lives. My daughter is is very activated, and she encouraged my mother to read How to Be an Anti-Racist, which she went out and got, and now she's reading it, and they're talking with each other about the issues in, in, in this book. That's new, uh, and, and it's my suspicion that those kinds of conversations are happening now in ways that they hadn't before. And can you just talk a little bit about whether you think we are at, whether it's a fulcrum or a turning point or something is now starting to unlock in our culture? Yeah, I mean, it, it really does feel like one of those pivot points, right? Or you might use, use the word fulcrum. I think that's a good, that's a good metaphor. 
and and one one thing to sort of say at the outset, right, is that I think for a lot of people might be experiencing some of these issues as as sort of new questions, new debates, right? And but of course for for black and brown communities, for leaders who have been in this fight for a long time, uh, especially folks on the ground in the movement for black lives and, and elsewhere, this has been a fight that is decades, you know, centuries, right, in, in the making. Uh, and it's also true that there's a way in which I think things have reached a, a critical mass where these debates are now sort of front and center in the national conversation. People are having these conversations in their homes, in their workplaces, uh, in their communities. And it's it's long overdue. So I, I do think that's the experience of this moment. I mean, you know, we'll see everything is in fl- is so in flux. You know, we'll, one hopes that we'll look back on this, you know, years from now and and see this as as one of those fulcrum moments. But I think uh, this is where the urgency and and the excitement for the work comes, right? Which is that whether or not this moment is a fulcrum depends on what we do now. Pivot points, turning points in history don't just happen. A lot depends on the actions that we all take and that others take in, in these next few months and over these next few years. And so the, the things I'd be really keen to see are, you know, uh, what happens with these conversations, right, as people are trying to educate themselves more about racial equity and the deep ways in which systemic racism shows up everywhere, the way that it demands a level of attentiveness and work uh, from every single one of us, including myself, including you, including like each person actually has to sort of grapple with their own role and positionality and what each of us are doing as individuals to help move to an anti-racist society, and then to bring that individual introspection into the political arena and think, well, what does that mean about you know who we're voting for in the fall? What does it mean about the policies that we're willing to support or go to bat for? To go from a racist society to an anti-racist society means that a lot of people are going to have to actually give something up, some degree of unearned privilege, and that means Maybe we, maybe it's the sort of comfortable school district that some of us might uh, have access to in the suburbs. Like, maybe it actually shouldn't be that way, and maybe we do need to pay more in taxes, uh, some of us, and maybe we do need to interrogate how we're leading on subconscious bias and implicit forms of racism in our daily interactions, right? And so, I think this whether this moment becomes a fulcrum point depends on the choices and actions that we take. And when you look at the Movement for Black Lives and so many of the other grassroots groups, you know, I think they're really laying out an agenda for a, like a roadmap for us to choose to follow if we are bold to make that choice. You know, the Movement for Black Lives released the other week a legislative proposal called the Breathe Act, which is sort of their framework for how you'd convert some of the, the demands uh, from the movement into very transformative, you know, revolutionary legislation that covers everything from police abolition to uh, massive reinvestments in black communities in terms of public infrastructure and public goods to dealing with our racist systems of voter suppression. That's so exciting to me because, you know, I think there's a lot of times people can dismiss movements by saying, well, oh, they're just raising critiques. There's no constructive vision, but that's totally false. There's a very clear constructive vision laid out by our movement partners. And this is you know, this is the moment where we can choose to follow it or not. And by the way, I take your point very much to heart that the conversations that my daughter and my mother were having are the kinds of conversations that black and brown people have every day. Ben McBride was on the show a while back, and he said, there's not a day that goes by when I'm not reminded that I'm a black man. Right. And, and I don't have that experience. 
So I, I really do take that point. And this notion that we are now in this moment where there seems to be at least some convergence across the left, that this opportunity has has come and it's even maybe creeping across the middle if there is such a thing left in America. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of what the components of this opportunity were? Why now? I mean, we've unfortunately been through so many painful moments in our history. And maybe this seems to be a a new opportunity. But why now? What happened? So we can take a crack at answering that question. I'm sure historians will have uh, debates about this in in the years to come. But I think there are a couple things going on right now at the same time. So one is just the, the uniqueness of this particular moment, right? We're seeing those cascades of failure and crisis that I mentioned at the top. The pandemic that is a racially disparate impact on you know mortality is especially high, especially for black and brown communities. The pandemic itself is cast into relief, the structural forms of racism that our society is built on. Then the economic collapse that is br- being brought about by the pandemic, right? That also has these deep racial impacts and that has brought our whole country to a standstill. And then on top of that, the epidemic of police violence, which was, you know, was here well before COVID and continues to be a problem even during COVID, right? It just gives a sense of how deep and widespread it is. But the fact of all of these three crises happening at the same time, and I think there's a lot to be said about just the Trump moment, right? And how uh, the open fomenting uh, and support for white supremacy and white nationalism outright from the president, like right from the highest uh, office in the land, all of that is combined to make this uh a unique moment, right, for these questions to erupt to the fore. But again, I think it only that only happens if you combine a moment with the kind of long, deep sort of infrastructure of a movement. And so I don't think we have we would have this moment if it weren't for all the yeah. organizing work that the Movement for Black Lives and so many other groups have been doing, you know, since Trayvon Martin going back decades. It's on the strength of that organizing that we're sort of experiencing this conversation right now. There was this polling done about how something like 60% of people are now have a favorable view of Black Lives Matter as a social movement. Uh, that was not the case after Ferguson, right, when Black Lives Matter first right. came to the fore. And that was during the Obama presidency, right, where you had the first, the nation's first black president. So it's not just about kind of the circumstances. These things take time to build enough critical mass from the bottom up to bust through. I want to talk a little bit more about this narrative building. You were on the board of the Narrative Initiative. Yep. Uh, we've been talking about how do you shape these narratives in such a way that people begin to kind of internalize these opportunities, the challenges and the opportunities, what to do about them, that that we're telling a new story about what it is to be an American in many ways. What, can you just unpack a little bit what a narrative, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to shape a narrative, to create one? We talk about it all the time, and I feel like I don't have a clue about what that actually means. What are your can you can you take a hack at it? Yeah. So this is something that, you know, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about, Eric, and our, our friends at the Narrative Initiative ha- have as well. I think it's helpful here to to make a distinction that, you know, our mutual friends at and I at Narrative Initiative have have really uh, helped shape my thinking on, which is, you know, distinguish on the one hand, sort of like the more surface level tactics of narrative, which is really like messaging, focus grouping, figuring out what's the right combination of words or sequence of words that will help convey an idea, poll testing language, right? Campaigns do, electoral campaigns do this kind of stuff all the time. And it's a really important set of tools. 
But I think that's different from what we're talking about here when we say narrative, right? Because I think here what we're trying to capture is this idea of like a kind of a deeper narrative shift, sort of our underlying mythologies, ideas, values, morals, uh, how we interpret the world around us. And that's a product of pretty deep sets of assumptions and stories and narratives that we all have coded in our minds that are you know, absorbed from our culture, from the media we consume, from our community, our society around us. And that's a deeper level of narrative shift, which is in some ways more powerful and more lasting, but also like more slippery, right? It's like harder to figure out, you know, how do you change the deep sub narratives of a society, right? That's a tall order. One example that I think we're starting to see some explicit reckoning around now is, you know, we have a lot of narratives in our politics that go deep into our culture about deservingness and presumptions about who deserves the wage that they're getting paid or who deserves to have access to public benefits. And a lot of those narratives about deservingness are completely racialized, right? We had the notion of an undeserving poor was one of the central sort of rhetorical narrative moves that helped justify the exclusion of black and brown communities from basic human rights around access to welfare support, to basic income, to jobs, to the safety net. And now as we're starting to interrogate that, I think you're starting to see the beginnings of a a different narrative that is one premised on equity, on inclusion, on sort of basic human dignity, right? I think you see that those types of tropes a lot in this moment uh, as an alternative. So I think the how of deep narrative shift, I mean, your your take is as good as mine, but it it does seem to me that it takes a few pieces. I think one is just unmasking those deep narratives and making them more visible, right? Because if they're not visible, we can't talk about them and change them. I think the second is thinking about what are those alternative frames and narratives, right? The alternative moral vision of of the kind of country we're trying to create. And then I think you really need these types of like collective experiences of, of moral and political education, moments like this movement moment where everybody is having to recreate their own mental model of how the world works and how the world ought to work. And so conversations like the ones that your daughter and your mother are having, I think are part of that, but it only works if it's part of then a larger societal conversation and not just sort of isolated one-off conversations here and there. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I've been uh, diving into Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and understanding how mental models, uh, what what they do to your your decision-making. Yeah. And and it feels like that's such an important component of it. You know, one other thing I'd add just, you know, as as we're thinking about it, I think part of it is about mental models. I think also narratives depend on lived reality to continue to have force. And so as as we're thinking about, well, what are the new narratives we want to put in place? That's where I think policy comes in and, and structural change comes in, because it becomes important, I think, to have like tangible, visible, almost like physical embodiments of the narratives and the values we're trying to live into. If you take something like, you know, something like social security for a long time after the New Deal, social security was a shared lived experience for uh, a lot of Americans that kind of embodied that narrative and value about the role of government in society. And by the same token, the, the exclusion of a lot of black and brown communities from, say, Uh, labor rights also embodied a narrative about who actually belongs and who doesn't. And so as we think about like, what's the policy that comes out of this movement moment? One thing I'm thinking a lot about is how do we make sure that the policies that result are policies that can help exemplify and then help hold down and, and almost demarcate the new values that we're trying to create? 
Well, you set me up for the, for my last question for you, which is, I know you have said many times that you're an optimist, as am I. What does a recovery with justice look like? What does the what does the reformation look like? It's such a great question. I think so. One one of the things that really is is truly exciting for an optimist like me about this moment is that we're uh, we're seeing policy ideas, structurally transformative policy ideas, be on the table and be taken seriously right now in a way that you know ideas that even two years ago right would be seen as fringe uh, and not worthy of serious consideration are now very much in the mix. And so I think there are a couple big things that that we need to accomplish policy-wise in the next few months and, and years. Uh, one is we need to finally dismantle and defund those institutions and systems that keep in place the hierarchies of race and class and gender in our society. And so that's what defund the police is really about, in my view, right? That's what ab- the conversation about abolition is about. It's also what our conversations about corporate power are about, right? This idea that, you know, how can we have an equitable economy when Amazon can basically force all of its workers, predominantly women and black and brown essential workers, to work at risk of death, where they're surveilled down to the second in the warehouses, in order to keep vacuuming up more and more profits uh, that it doesn't then pay back in taxes, right? Like that's like, at some point, Amazon's actually going to have to cease to exist if we want to live in, a, in an equitable economy. And so we've got all of these institutions that basically reinforce racial hierarchy, uh, hoard wealth, and hoard political power. And we actually just need to like call it what it is and, and get rid of those systems. And so things like abolition, things like dismantling corporate power. Uh, the second thing is then we need to invest, instead of investing in those systems of control and extraction, we need to redirect those dollars into the kind of expansive and inclusive public infrastructure that communities need to flourish and thrive. And this is the other side of the movement for Black Lives call for invest, divest, right? Remove funding from police and the carceral state, which are premised on racial hierarchy and and, uh, racial violence, and instead put those dollars into the things that communities actually need, affordable housing, public education, clean air and water, environmental justice, right? Stuff like that. So that's the second plank, sort of affirmative investments in in the public and have that be really for the whole public, not just for, you know, an elite, wider and wealthier set of the public. Uh, And then the third thing is we need to reinvent our institutions of democracy. We need to uh, ensure that from the electoral system all the way through to how policy is then made in the legislature through to how it's actually implemented by the bureaucracy, that the communities most affected are the ones who have the most voice, right? That black and brown communities, workers are able to vote that they're able to exercise influence on the legislature and on the bureaucracy, and that they are the experts helping shape and craft and execute these policies, right? Not just leaving it up to sort of a traditional class of policy elites. That's what democracy really is. And then to kind of bring us full circle, right? I think if if you're committed to democracy, you have to believe that we the people means all of us, particularly uh, dismantling the exclusions along race, uh, and that we actually can have self-determination. It's surprising to me how many people say they believe in democracy, but don't actually believe in the self-determination of black and brown communities. This is the time for us to actually build democratic institutions that are truly democratic and deserving of the name. I think that we're on the path to that. I certainly hope so. And I I also just encourage all the folks out there listening to pay attention to what (laughs) Sabil has been doing and to engage with Demos, because I do think that you are giving us this, not just a vocabulary, but tools to bring all these pieces together. And I, I really just so appreciate what you do, Sabiel. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad you're there. <laughs> and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. 
Uh, thanks so much, Eric. We really appreciate the kind words and, and the support. This is, a, this is a, a powerful moment to be in, and I'm grateful to be part of it. Well, thank you again, Savil Rahman, president of Demos. Thank you, Eric. And we're back, and that was Eric and Savil talking about Demos and talking about um, how to make everything better in America. And I have to say, I'm so glad that you guys are both optimists because the, the, the tangled web of problems that Demos is trying to unravel is so significant that I, it's funny that the, the word that came to the phrase that came to mind for me as you guys concluded that conversation was uh, what it's, it's the notion of a restoration agenda. Yeah. It's like, what does the agenda look like? And, and, and I love the fact that Demos actually has an answer for that. And I, I loved hearing about the breathe act process and, and, and what that, what that entails and what that looks like. So Clearly, uh, Sabil is a truly committed and super thoughtful person in this space. T- tell me about your your travels with Sabil, and and I'd I'd love to I would I would love to just be a fly in the wall of the narrative projects board meetings and the conversations you guys are having about all this stuff because it just seems like a pretty extraordinary set of people coming together to have these conversations about how you reshape the narrative moving forward. Oh, the narrative initiative! It has been such an interesting, and I, I just feel very lucky to have to be able to participate in in that in that board it has been extraordinary to sit there and and think about how do you shape a progressive narrative in America and then talking to Sibiel who's processing this on a daily basis as a leader for a national organization that as i mentioned is the holy trinity of the social sector is has you know it's just it's so cool i feel very lucky i feel <laughs> i feel slightly fraudulent but <laughs> What can I say? I'm just just happen to be in the big leagues, coach. Hey, I think I think you were thrown with heat once again on this. And you know, I love that conversation you guys had where you parsed and Sabil took the lead in this because you asked him the tough question. You know, how do you think about narrative? How do you think about uh, of attacking that question? And he drew the distinction between narrative as a tactic versus narrative um, and all of the different elements that come together to shape or frame or, or, or tell us what it means to be an American to drive that deeper narrative shift that you guys were talking about and getting into the underlying mythologies, the values, the morals for how we interpret the world around us. Tell me about that because I love that distinction between narrative as a, as a tactic that's kind of grounded in the stuff that you do related to messaging, which back in the day used to be the state of the art of the field. And, and this deeper shift now people are talking about saying, no, actually we have to, we actually have to get into these assumptions that we're carrying around coded in our minds and how we how we um, pull that apart? Tell me about that. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because these conversations, uh, my brain works in in not good ways, but eventually I come around <laughs> to things and I eventually learn. And I have spent a reasonable amount of time recently with Trabian Shorters, who runs the Be Me Initiative, and who whose great speech at Communications Network we rebroadcast on the podcast. And I, I just urge people to go back and listen to that. Because there, these two ideas are coming together in my own mind, which is what Trabian is saying is that we create mental models by the way we shape our narratives or the way we speak. So if you talk about somebody who is um, interested in or, you know, is working, striving to be a better student and so that they can get a decent job so that they can build a family and have a life and things like that, that can describe somebody who other people would 
would name in pejorative terms, that they're at risk or that they're disadvantaged or whatever, and that those mental models are shaping in our own, you know, in this unconscious way, these true narratives about what we believe the world to be. And this enables us to move ideas in a most in a much different way than just kind of reframing you know way back when yeah. in the oh, the good old 90s we were just trying to reframe <laughs> issues what we're now trying to do is remake mental models so that the the expression of that is organically different and i i think that's what Sabil is talking about when he's referring to the, to these two concepts of narrative and oh, oh by the way i would just point out that rashad robinson of color of change just put out a, a paper where they, they just republished a paper that he had written about the narrative around narrative. And I would just like for us to read that and talk about it at a different time. But I would urge people to to read that as well, because these are these conversation conversations that are nesting on top of each other, which are, are helping me to better understand how do we communicate? How do we carry these messages and how do we actually build for something as opposed to just kind of winning by one vote. Instead, we really are trying to reshape what we think the future of the country would be, should be, and what it looks like. And that's that's how you actually build lasting movements. Well, and I loved how, um, you know, he said, when you said, how'd you get started? You know, and, and I've loved how you've asked that question of some different people that we've had on the podcast. And his answer to it was, well, you we have to get clear about the root problem and that race and power is at the heart of what we're fighting against. And this is the part where I could just go into my own little black hole of despair talking about, you know, our economy and air quotes democracy, the way it's been engineered to reassert hierarchies of race and concentrate political power that um, and, and the examples he gave of that. It just feels like such a such a stark thing to come to terms with and recognize how profoundly true that is. And yet it really then to see the way that Demos pulls that forward into this notion of a think and do tank and the way that they bring together all these different parties to create this notion of a movement for a just and inclusive multiracial democracy. It's, I love this kind of work, you know, and, and Sabil, man, it's, I get the sense too, that he actually truly appreciates. Um, it feels like he's, he's an odd, the opportunity that he's been given, but he also truly appreciates where he's at. And, you know, he's written um, in April, he had a piece COVID-19 in the crisis of racial capitalism, where he really lays it out in terms of, you know, what the COVID epidemic is meaning for, you know, black and brown voters and, and the kinds of things that need to be done to address that. And so I love that notion of it's, <laughs> this is such a complicated and multifaceted problem that, you know, that, that everyone's trying to unravel here. And yet there are some really tangible policy solutions at the center of it that it feels, feels like are getting more and more crystallized as we move forward with these conversations. Do you have that sense? Like, do you think that's a fair way to characterize it? I do. I do. I, I don't think that we have, <laughs> I don't think we have, uh, um, what, permeated fair. The, the culture <laughs> just fair. yet. Uh, I don't, I, I think that people who don't know about Sabil, his work and the work of Demos really should learn, should just go to their website and, and get a better sense of what they're doing because they are these this great connection point for so many of the organizations that many of our listeners uh, either work at or care about. So he is this it is a it is a really, really interesting organization that there's not so many like them. I guess you know Center for American Progress sort of I mean there's a, some of that uh, but this feels like there's a lot more kind of this this narrative, this understanding of narrative is so central to what they're doing. 
and uh, and he's just you know it's you can hear it in his voice. He's an extraordinary guy. He is such yeah. <laughs> a cool guy, and I'm yeah, just lucky yeah. to have had the chance to get to know him a little bit. Well, before we go, because he did talk about how narrative, you know, it requires um, tangible expressions, like you change things by creating, you know, tangible physical embodiments of, right. of what's shifting. So, and you guys talked about the Breathe Act, which I would encourage anybody who's interested to go check it out at breatheact.org. And let me read to you one aspect of the Breathe Act, and you can tell me uh, how, how radical this sounds, right? How radical does this sound? creating a clear time-bound plan for ensuring that all communities have public access to safe, clean water for housing, drinking, and food production. This is 2020 in the United States of America, and this is what this right. is what we're trying to put into federal law so that that actually is a reality for all Americans. How extraordinary is that? I mean, I mean, so it, it's, it's funny. It's like when you think about narrative shift, it is such a, a tangled web. Well, how about, here's an idea. What if everybody had access to safe and clean water? How about that? Right. Communists. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Heresy. Oh my. Right. How dare they. Right. Well, you're right. Right. Hey, I want to do one more thing, Kirk, mm. while, we, while, while we've got each other here, which is to thank yeah. the Lumina Foundation for another year of their sponsorship. Uh, it's, we are d- deeply grateful. And I also wanted to throw in a plug for their podcast, which is it's called Today's Student, Tomorrow's Talent. And it's a terrific uh, podcast about people. Uh, if you care about education, th- this is a great place to learn more. And you can... You can learn more at luminafoundation.org slash news slash podcast. Again, it's Today's Student, Tomorrow's Talent, Lumina Foundation. Thank you so much for your sponsorship. If uh, other folks out there would like to sponsor, let's hear it. <laughs> Let us know because we'd love, we would love to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Lumina. And I love that they're doing their own podcast. And I love to see more and more foundations actually playing with that part of their overall approach, you know, and, and, and supporting things like Let's Hear It and supporting their own vehicles. It's really, it's really tremendous. So yeah. yes, thank you. Thank you, Lumina. Well, Eric, what a conversation. We've got to say thank you to Sabil too. And, um, and, you know, head over to Demos to see all that, all that they're doing there. Um, there's so much cool work that's coming out of those guys. It's just, it's just been terrific to hear about it. Yeah, it was great. I was, I was just thrilled. Okay, thanks everybody. Until next time, that's Let's Hear It. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show. And that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowment. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no, thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it. <laughs>